We're back to the Neil Haley Show. And I spoke to this gentleman, I, I can't remember how many years ago, with G.J. Reynolds, my mentor, who's an owner of Women of Faith, was a five-star by Salas. And he spoke so highly of this man and learned so much about him. I had to back on again where I'm going to ask more of the questions by myself. So I'm excited to welcome Ben Gay the third. Ben, thanks for stopping by, man. I uh, appreciate it and want to kind of talk about because you are one of the gurus or fathers in so many ways that GJ talked about in entrepreneurship in specific ways. So, Ben, tell us more of your background for our listeners that might not know you, and then we'll go into more of what you're currently doing. Well, I'm obviously handsome. I uh, live in Placerville, California, where gold was discovered. Uh, the California Gold Rush started seven miles from where I'm sitting. I'm married to a lovely lady named Gigi. I've been in selling since I was 10 and won a citywide contest in Atlanta selling Krispy Kreme donuts and a bicycle. And that hooked me. I am now in professional selling all these years later because I won a red Columbia bicycle. Then I opened a lawnmowing service employing in the growing season at Atlanta 2025 of my friends. I never had to mow a lawn. I did the selling, the inspecting, and the collecting and split, split the money with them. And they made, as a result of the system my father taught me, as much or more than they would have made if they'd gotten the job by themselves and done the work. So they were happy. And a few other sales jobs, traveling, manufacturers, representative, et cetera. September 15, 1965, I answered a small ad in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution said, if you know anything about marketing plans, want to make more money, dial this number. I did. I wanted to make more money. And uh, it turned out that my business partner and I, my running buddy, Jimmy Rucker, and I answered the ad. And the only other person that responded to it was a little Southern guy named Zig Ziglar. Oh so we, we started out on the same day and the same guy. He was 18 years older and had been selling cookware, but he'd never really made it big. He was just a door-to-door referral type salesperson. But we got into the big money then, uh, first six months or so, we struggled, Jimmy and I did. <clears throat> but by the sixth, seventh month, we were making about $40,000 a month in 1965 dollars. That's about 400 or more thousand a month today. Right. And I was hooked and off and running. I've had my ups and downs, but I've never really looked back. A couple of little interesting things. I, uh, taught a class called People Builders at San Quentin State Prison and at Lompoc Federal Prison. Met a lot of interesting people. Among them was a gentleman who asked that I be brought to his cell so we could visit. Charlie Manson was his name. Oh my God. About the same time, an old friend said, my husband works for NASA. Would you come down and want to watch a rocket launch? So I went down and saw Apollo 14 take off met a bunch of astronauts at a backyard party they had and became the attitude coach for Apollo 15, 16, 17. I've shaken the hands of every human that ever walked on the moon and probably a hundred other astronauts of various status. So a little Southern guy from Atlanta, Georgia with a high school education, it's been an interesting life. Well, you talk about Zig Ziglar. You, yeah. you, so let's go with your experience when working with Zig. So that was kind of like, what were you guys doing together and how long did you know Zig? 
until he died mm -hmm. uh, from 1965 on. <clears throat> Pardon me, we have a fire here in Northern California and the smoke is getting to me. I'm susceptible to hay fever. And as it turns out, fire smoke. <laughs> I didn't I didn't really know that. Yeah, Zig, as I said, was 18 years old. Or he was in the Navy the day I was born. So he had a jump on me. But he, like a lot of salespeople, he never really clicked and taken off. Holiday Magic Cosmetics was his start. Selling cosmetics, recruiting people to sell cosmetics, etc. And about a year, year and a half later, they had a year-long sales contest. A year later, I guess. Uh, nationwide. First prize was a mystery prize. Second prize was a Rolls Royce. Third prize, I think, was a Lincoln Continental and a Thunderbird, whatever. Steak knives, probably after that. And uh, I won the contest, Jimmy and I, but I won the contest. Um, much to my surprise, I really, I knew we were doing well, but I wasn't keeping track day by day. On the last day of the contest, uh, I held an opportunity meeting and recruited X number of people and so much sales volume. On that same day in Columbia, South Carolina, Zig held a victory party because he knew he had won. And when the money was totaled, the amount I beat Zig by was the amount I made in that last opportunity meeting, the, the last day of the contest. Flew to California, met with the owner, the chairman of the board of the company, William Penpatrick, to find out what the mystery prize was. And it turned out it was presidency of the company. So Zig and I met uh, in September 65. And a little less than, less than two years later, he was working for me. I was still learning from Zig. Don't misunderstand me. But I used to love whenever Zig was in earshot. They'd say, uh, do you... Uh, do you know Zig Ziglar or how do you know Zig? And I'd always say loud enough for Zig to hear. Yes, he uh, works for me. And which uh, <laughs> technically was true, but I never lost track of who got there first and, and who was doing a great job. Oh, and I asked Bill Patrick, the owner of the company, I said, why was it a mystery prize? He said, in case somebody won that I didn't like, then I would have changed the prize maybe giving away two Rolls Royces or something. I remember on, on several occasions, Zig and I were talking on the phone. He was back there. I was now in California running the company. And I found out being president of the company wasn't quite as glamorous as it looked like from the outside. We had corporate jets and all sorts of fancy things. But if you've ever flown in a Learjet, you know that flying first class American Airlines is better than the inside of a Learjet. So I, on bad days, if I was talking to Zig, I'd say, Zig, I'll tell you what, you bring the keys and the Rolls Royce and I'll give you the keys to the front door and you can be present. And he said, oh no, you won fair and square. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness gracious. And then you talk about Charlie Manson. What did you learn that, what, that was, I guess, uh, something that you could go into sales about talking to that man and understanding him? I'll, I'll tell you one thing, yeah, when I walked into his cell, he was in the, what's called the Adjustment Center. That's junior college for death row. The reason he couldn't come into my class, he just watched me come and go through a window across the uh, catwalk from where his cell was, and he asked to meet me. He was fascinated that a couple hundred people would greet me when I came in Friday night, and 12 hours later, Saturday morning, a couple hundred people would wave goodbye. 
And so he wondered what that was. So he asked to have me come up and I agreed to do it. When I walked into his cell, uh, he uh, had one book. He had a two bunk cell, but nobody wanted to sleep with Charlie and the, the uh, administration didn't want anybody to sleep with him. You don't want to be the one who puts somebody in the cell and Charlie kills him. Uh, that, that would be bad on your resume. So they kept him by himself. And uh, I walk into his cell and I look up the top bunk. He used like a book a bookcase. That was the only thing on it was his personal belongings. Nearest to the front door was a book, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. And I said, Charlie, what an interesting reading selection. And I'm looking around. He didn't have a Gideon Bible in there. That sort of comes with a deal. That was the only book he had. He said, uh, Ben or Mr. Gay, whatever he was calling me, the first few visits, uh, that's my Bible. He said, I could have built, I couldn't have built a Manson family without it. So that was an early lesson, although I was over 30 at the time. That was an early lesson for me in you can take something and use it for good or evil. I can give you a gun and you can protect your family and be a hero and be on all the national news stories. Or... You can take the gun and go rob a bank and kill a couple of people. Same gun, different attitude. So Charlie had taken a book that has made many millionaires and made many people very successful and used it to build the Manson family. He said, it's my Bible. I couldn't have built the Manson family without it. Now, the other thing uh, that I remember about him, he, first of all, people say, oh, weren't you afraid? A. I was a big I was a big deal in the prison. No one was going to be the one who got me killed. So although there was nobody in sight, it was just the two of us in the cell. I'm reasonably confident if I had yelled guard, somebody would be there unlocking the door in seconds. So I wasn't physically afraid even before I saw him. Once I saw him, I wasn't afraid at all. If you remember Sammy Davis Jr., uh, how small he was, Charlie was about that height, maybe a little smaller. So he was no physical threat. He was a mental threat. I remember telling some of my friends, I am so glad that I didn't come to California in the summer of love. Actually, I did, but it was to run holiday magic. But come to holiday, come to San Francisco for the summer of love, 19 years old, maybe like a lot of those kids were, and fall in with Charlie Manson. I might have been in Sharon Tate's house stabbing somebody oh my goodness well he was mentally very persuasive yeah and he had eyes when he looked at you he never broke eye contact never not not to look away not to cough not emphasis he looked right at you and i had the feeling his stare was going in my eyes and out the back of my head okay Uh, formidable that way so you talk about that the astronauts what are you currently doing ben i know you have your podcast but what's newest with you well, I do what I've always done. I mean, I've been doing, I hate for old friends to call up after a long time and say, what are you doing now? And I said, well, do you remember what I said the last time you asked me that 20 years ago? Yeah, uh, I'm still speaking, still giving sales training. I'm still writing books, coaching, consulting, mentoring with people. We just added, uh, I'm semi-famous for the Closer series. It's the best selling, most popular most powerful books on selling and closing ever written. And we just started shipping even last week of this week, the closers part five. Okay. 
and now we're adding to the series. I probably will live to see the closers part 20, I'm guessing. And I've written to show you what a forward thinking guy I am. I don't have one. I do. I just wrote a permanent forward for closers books that come after me. And in essence, it says, uh, when it don't, don't may, may not live forever, really focus my thinking first to family, then to business. And so I appointed a board of advisors to work with Gigi Gay, my wife. And uh, if you see, if you're holding a, a book called The Closers and it's blue and it's got the National Association of Professional Salespeople seal of approval, and my name is on the front as the writer of the forward, I either approve the book or would have approved the book if I were still alive. So that'll go in the closers part, 21, right. 22, 23, 24. Oh, wow. So yeah. we're gonna go on, people are always saying, are you building your legacy? Well, I've sold enough books now and, and I've written 25, sold, closers part one alone sold 10 and a half million when we quit counting 25 years ago. Wow. So uh, I've got, millions of books on various shelves, some in garage sales, I'm sure, out floating around and hundreds of forwards. Wow. So I can literally say it will be hundreds of years before there's no longer a book Interesting. on the planet that didn't have been gay on the front of it. All right. So Ben, my question to you is, what tip would you offer to close a deal? right now to our listeners and viewers. Well, as you know, I have a 86%, we've talked about it before, I have an 86% closing rate. Wow. Not, not somebody calling up, want to buy a book or something, if I happen to catch that call, that doesn't count. I'm talking about seminars, serious investments, land in Arizona, whatever. 86% of the people I've given a sales presentation to over the years, I'm guessing that's about 100,000 one-on-one, not counting 15,000 right. in an arena. I've closed 86% of them. How? I cheat. Here's how I cheat. I only sell quality products and services that are competitively priced. Doesn't have to be the cheapest, but competitively priced. And I spend my time talking to people or communicating over the internet, whatever, with people who are qualified to buy. That could be spiritually, physically, geographically, financially in a position to buy. I, for instance, would not have wasted any time trying to sell my mother an oil tanker. She didn't need an oil tanker. So I would talk to people who are in the business of buying, selling, trading. So you have to find the people qualified. And how do you define that qualified based on your service? By talking to them. And find, first of all, you sort of know who's qualified. So, so you, you have to go through those people to fair, verify if they're qualified or not. Yeah. So, so you're talking say 86, right, once you qualify. You, well, once you qualify them, you closed 86%. You, right. You're going to have to get through a hell of a lot of them to get to the qualified, right? Yeah. You, you talk to a lot of people casually. Uh, I'm a sales infiltrator. When I'm talking to someone, it sounds like I'm just chatting. I'm gathering information. I'm finding out their hopes, their dreams, their qualifications. I don't prejudge people, but it's just no point. I did sales training for British Motors in San Francisco years ago. And I said, what's your biggest problem? They said, price. And I said, well, let's knock that down up front. Sales infiltrators don't wait for the shoe to drop and then try and overcome it. We bring it up first and brag about it. 
and then knock it down up front. So when we get to the close, uh, we're not surprised and they can't pull nonsense on us. They can't say, well, I don't have the money. I said, whoa, whoa, we promised we'd be straight, straight with each other. And I ask you if you had the money and you said, yes, so don't give me any bull. Tell me what's holding you back. Now, by then, see, we're friends. People buy from people they know, like, and trust. That's a phrase I coined years ago, and I have recently added to it. And with whom they feel safe. At British Motors in San Francisco, they were selling rolls and other Bentleys, I guess. But rolls was what was on my mind because I was impressed to see them. And I taught them to greet them at the door. Hi, my name is Ben Gay. How are you? Pleasure to meet you. How can I help you? Well, I'm here to look at that rolls right there. You know, Neil, one of the great things about this job that I love is I get to meet people who are successful enough to be able to invest $350,000 minimum in a Rolls Royce. It, I, I want to get to know you better over time. And then I look at you. If your eyes dilate and start drooling or you throw up, you don't have $350,000. So you qualify them up front and don't, you don't waste all day doing it. I just, wrote, I just wrote something yesterday about a friend, of, a friend of Gigi, my wife, who worked for her father. And we live on the way up to Lake Tahoe. So people get off the highway and come in and they take up realtor's time. You know, hi, this is a beautiful area. Can you drive me around? And the amateurs jump in the car and drive all over Eldorado County and then come back and discover they don't have any money or they were just lonely or they were waiting for their aunt to meet them there, something. This guy, Jim Moore, would greet them at the door. Hi, how are you? If they had kids, give the kids coloring book. I mean, did it all. He was a Southern gentleman dressed in Western wear. And then when he got all the niceties like that handled, he would sit down, invite them to sit down, put his feet up on the desk and say, now that we have passed the pleasantries of the day, tell me, do you have any money? And Gigi's father used to cringe, but Jim was their number one salesman for 15 years. He didn't waste any time with people who weren't qualified. Oh, man. Them. And so so then that's not considered losing clothes. If you figured that they're not qualified, you're talking about getting them through the process, qualifying them. You're going to close 86% of the time. Yeah. So you're going to go through a lot of numbers. And that's a great thing to think about is how do you pre-qualify people, especially in the online marketing world? This is a good question. How do you pre-qualify people in the online marketing world where you really don't know them from Adam in a specific thing and you get on a call with them. Well, if it's they go to a site, read it and buy, I don't have to close them. The writing right. close them. Sure. If for some reason we wind up talking, uh, I quickly, I go from however they got there to email and qualify them a little bit. And then we go to the phone. I'm not going to waste my time talking to somebody who's in his mother's basement, uh, hasn't had a job in 20 years and is lonely. I don't have time. So we get down to it quickly, but we establish, Neil, I establish as fast as I can who I am. First, I sell Ben Gay. I'm like the good housekeeping seal of approval. If you know my background and trust me and know that I know what I'm talking about and so on, then all I have to do is endorse it. I've written 25 books, most of them on selling and closing. Here's about all that. Here's the only clothes I use. 
I spend 25 minutes, maybe 30 minutes getting in position to use it like a sniper. I don't, I don't go bird hunting, you know, with shotgun shells and hope one of my right. thousand pellets hits two birds. I'm like a sniper. When I pull the trigger, I'm going to hit you. I know where you are, who you are. I know if you're in the sniper, I have sniper friends who used to be snipers. You don't shoot the private in the front of the line. You right. shoot the captain in the back of the line. One, you get the most valuable one. Two, the others don't even know he was hit. You, you fired from 1,500 yards away. You can start working from the back of the line to the front of the line to the lead guy is the only one left. So I'm a sniper. When I pull the trigger, I know the answer. And my close is this. Uh, Neil, I've, I've really appreciated your openness, openness and honesty. Based on what you've told me, here's what I suggest we do. Fill in the blank. Fair enough. 86% of them say, yeah, I'd say 80% say yes. And with the others, it smokes out one last question. Then we answer that and 86% buy. All right. Yesterday, I was talking to a nice lady who was buying a mastermind package to me in a group that I'm one of the leaders of. And I think it was, I think it was $26,000. I sort of came in late to the party but $26,000. And I was talking to her and she was back and forth and we established where she still lives in Atlanta. I'm from Atlanta, a couple of mutual contact type situations. And then I said, okay, well, listen, based on what uh, you've uh, told me, here's what I suggest we do. I suggest you join the program. If you need financing, I'll turn you over to Shannon who will work out your financing with you. And she says, well, I, I want to think about it. And I said, let me tell you something. We said we'd be straight, straight with each other. When someone decides to buy, I feel an atmospheric pressure change. I mean, literally like somebody opens a door behind you and your ears react to the new pressure. I felt that with you 15 minutes ago, asking you to join us was being, was just doing you a favor, a courtesy, sort of what you do at the end of a conversation. You've already decided to join, right? And she said, right. I said, so you just want to know what the payment's going to be, right? Right. Okay. Shannon, transfer her out of the call and uh, work that out. That, see, there was no sneaking around or being creepy or devious. We agreed to be honest with each other. Right at the end, typical buyer, she decided to not quite be honest with me. I called her on it and told her to buy, as only a friend can tell you, and she bought and I hadn't known her, by the way, and I haven't met her yet, but I had known her on the screen 20 minutes when I told her what to do. All right. Where can people go and find information on your personal books and learn more about you, Ben? Well, one of the things they can do, they just reset up my bookcase area. So let me find it. This is very high tech. Uh, it's on the back of a piece of cardboard. Here's what they can do. Go to stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni, R-O-N-Z-O-N-E, books, B-O-O-K-S. Go there, and uh, the entire Closer series is there, all with special pricing and free domestic shipping. So the reason I'm not sending them to my website is this is a better deal for them. Uh, 
I make less money, but uh, they do better. So that's the way to do it. www, well, not even www, just stores.ebay.com forward slash Ronzoni books. We'll send them out the same day we get your order. I recommend to start the closers parts one, two, and three, and then we'll work you over time through the system. All right, Ben, we appreciate you coming by. Definitely have to have it on again. You are a wealth of knowledge, and I appreciate you coming on the show. Neil, thank you. It was my honor and pleasure. You're listening and watching The Neil Haley Show. We'll be back in just a moment. We're back to The Neil Haley Show here on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Segment. I'm excited to welcome program Caregiver Dave Nassani. Dave, how are you? What's going on? How are you doing? In the middle of a book tour. That's exciting, always. Oh, yeah. So how's the book tour going? It's going great. Uh, pitching TV programs. To get on there, I've been all uh, Washington D.C. already pitching my book. It's going great. All right, and, my, and I'm excited about our guest today, and uh, really, really excited about our guest. And you know, when you talk about photographers and their life and different things, so I'm excited to welcome for a renowned photographer, Elliot Landy, and he <laughs> is releasing uh, photographs of Janis Joplin on the road and on stage. Elliot, thanks for stopping by. How are you? <laughs> I'm actually really well, just have so much to do and I'm, I'm safe and I have a nice home and a nice family. And so no complaints here. All right. So Dave, now I'm going to ask a question Dave first about, you know, Janis Joplin, you're a musician, you're into all that stuff. Dave. I am a huge, fan? huge, huge fan of Janis Joplin. I sing her songs. I, I just love her. Oh. And it's so sad that uh, we only have one great album from her that what that people listen to, you know. Which one do you mean? Pearl. Oh, Pearl, you think? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> the one with all the hits on it. <laughs> yeah. No, actually, my favorite is Cheap Thrills. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. All right. So, Elliot, so what go. made you decide <laughs> to write this book? It, it's got Summertime. It's got Peace of My Heart. You know, these are the songs that that made her and that she's known by the, the the newer ones. I'm not putting the new one down at all. But if you want to compare, it's just I mean, I can listen to Summertime forever. Just I never got into the new ones. Now. Maybe I should check them out. I, I'm Chief Thrills is the first one on CBS that they did. Oh. And then uh, Columbia Records. Yes. Yeah, if you haven't listened to it carefully. And I saw a number of concerts that Janice did from um the early, the first ones in in uh, New York City to the uh, Woodstock concert and so on and um, the band Big Brother and the Holding Company to me even though they may be technically flawed I don't know about that stuff so I'm not a trained musician but I know there was some complaints about that um, yeah. but they had the most energy that I experienced of of her her playing and and so on so. And but the the recording cheap thrills the album is is was I think terribly done I think so so technologically it does not capture what Janice was about during that yeah. period at all. So, so how does it work? Now you got all these pictures of Janice. Who owns the rights to them? Did you have her sign something uh, before you this was, took all the pictures? How does that the, work? The sixties were before signatures existed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and there was no awareness of what a big business all of this was going to be and even the record labels didn't do it right i don't have the specific details on that but there was the contracts with 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 musicians and ownership that I, from what i i know 
just from being told they used to steal the music rights that's that goes way down back uh many years of if sure. an artist were to write a song the record label would want to keep it or someone involved with the publishing and they got cheated like that but um nobody thought that the um but there were a lot of other rights that they just didn't get at those years and um photography was unless uh, the the law is that unless i signed a paper or that it was that i was doing it uh you know for someone i owned it it was a natural thing you huh. took the picture you owned it yeah so i have all my you. rights very fortunately uh in in later years i stopped taking i stopped doing assignments um i don't remember uh, i guess basically in 1970 71 when i went to europe um but uh and then a few times when i got back from europe in 78 and 80 and in early 80s i think i got some jobs or some work to do right and and they would say that they wanted to own the photographs the record company and so on and i i said to them look all you need is 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 the use of the photographs you don't need to own the pictures because they just sit i had seen pictures sit in their file cabinets they don't look at it they don't want to know from it at all sure i said so so the thing i worked out uh with a couple of times i i i did some photographs after that were that i can use them and they could use them basically um but that was rare i i just stopped working with i didn't really want to work for people i really wanted to follow my own spirit my own my own love i started photography because i loved to i wanted to show someone something beautiful sure. that i had seen it was as pure as that and whenever i got away from that in my life now i'm 70 79 years old uh i don't feel so good yeah. <laughs> how many so pictures I, are we talking about of janice how many i don't really know the number my, my assistant would probably <laughs> know that but they were like 40 rolls of black and white film i think wow. i'm not even sure exactly <laughs> Uh, 36 Ali. pictures on a roll and then there's color also you know I, I don't wow yeah Ali, why what I say, now what makes you want to release this book now uh what because they're gorgeous photographs <laughs> and I've been looking at my pictures of Janice for so long oh, right no and they're just I mean um I've been I've been wanting to do books of my work for a long time and it's only now when self-publishing is is here yeah. and I learned how to do stuff with with regular publishers and so on uh, but I couldn't find a publisher to do this right and then when I did like wow. I did a book on my band for my photographs of the band uh, maybe in when was it um 2004 2005 something like that and I had two publishers who wanted to publish it okay you know I, I had an agent for that and she got two publishers both main big mainstream publishers right and one of them I go in there and I meet the the editor editorial chief of the whole department and of the whole company and then I met the editor they had signed to me right and they just were very effusive about loving my work and all that stuff and then we started talking about the book and the moment I started saying my ideas for it you know like I want a picture on a page and this and that it was like I was I was cursing them right yeah. and and that deal got dropped very quickly they didn't want to hear they didn't want interference so even though people appreciate my skills as a as an imaging person right. and not people I mean this particular group but most publishers like that they just want to do it because basically they have a job and they got to get turn things out and yeah. it's easier if there's a third party who's very critical and particular doesn't get involved so 
and and the second publisher I had uh, for that same book gave me a, a mock-up of a seven inch by eight inch book, something like that. And they had they had put the pictures bleeding on the pages, oh. not, not attractive at all. And well, you know, I would have put up with it because it, it's a good, good amount of money. Well, no, I, I didn't. It was a good amount of money and it didn't look terrible or anything. It just wasn't what I think the photographs should have. So, but the contracts would have given them the rights to the pictures forever. Oh. And I could never do another book. So oh, once no. I couldn't, I couldn't denegotiate that. I just took it all back and I walked away and I did a Kickstarter at the time. That was the most funded photographic book in their history. Like, Oh, uh, oh. I got actually over $200,000. Uh, and that let me, get my own Chinese printer and arrange uh, with the high quality work. And uh, I just, I laid everything out. Uh, I had an assistant who's now a musician herself, uh, Rachel Dobkin. She went through every band photograph I had and every Janice and every, every contact sheet. And she gave me choices. I, I won't go through the whole process, but I did it my way completely hundred percent. And I, I love it. Every time I look at it. What year it. was it when they turned you down? Uh, must when you turn them down, I should say it must have been 2014 or something, 2015. Yeah. I'm not really sure. I could go so, look it up. So you made the right choice. You did. You definitely. Well, the band book is, is beautiful. So then, yeah. so then you asked me what did. It, so I, I knew how to do it. I knew the printer I could do it with, and and I had the skills now. And I found a woman named Caitlin Allison who um, was my assistant on this, and she designed it and went through every picture also, and we worked well together. So that made me do it, that I have all the pieces for it. And they were pretty uh, high resolution uh, even back uh, in the 70s, huh? Well, film has, has a very, film. most film is, well, I don't know, I can't, I can't generalize about digital, but film had a really high resolution, yeah, mm -hmm. because it was all film work. Yeah. So it, it's all, it, there's enough to make, I mean, I blow my pictures up to eight feet wide sometimes. Wow. If necessary, yeah. Maybe. But you can get a really good sharp image at three feet wide without any. I mean, you have to. You can't go two inches from it. You got to stand back. So anyway, I, I had all these beautiful photographs, and I loved her music. I, I loved, you know, I loved who she was as a person. And um, I had done some work with David Dalton, who actually passed away a few weeks ago. In fact, he was a writer. He's written many books about music and 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 celebrity. Um, and he had interviewed Janice uh, um, a, a year, six months before she passed away oh. on, on cassette tapes and so on. So I, I had made a deal and I had once um, uh, financed him writing a script to do a film about her life. But that never happened. We, we never got the film made. That's a long it's story. It's not too late, you know. But, oh, I don't. Well, you know. If you want to come in as a producer, I've got the I, I, I've got the idea on how to do it for sure. So, Elliot, I, want I to can't believe that you'd have trouble selling that. No. Well, I, I, are you a film producer? Have you ever have you ever tried to produce a Not film? Not a film producer, no. There you go. go. But Dave's learning. Dave's learning this process. Yeah, they're they're, they're so making cool. a film about my life, so I oh, am yeah? learning. Yeah, really? so Dave's, oh, wow. Dave's learning the industry, and it's all oh. about just learning. See, Elliot, look at you. You oh, said, yeah. you know what? I'm not going to put up with this. I am going to do this myself. Oh, yeah. That's oh, you, okay. proved, you proved it. First with the $200,000. Yes, yeah. I can't imagine that. Yeah. Kickstarter raising that money. Were yeah. most of those people Janis Joplin fans that helped no, you no. raise money? 200000 was for the band book. And then uh, that was in uh, 2014, 2015. I could search it, but I don't know how much time we have. Um, 
but, but that was the highest amount they'd ever raised for a photographic book in their history at that yeah. time. And that I, that was good and bad because because I had so much money, I took my time and it took me a year and a half. Actually, the book would have been out in about in about a year and a quarter. And then I got a distributor that wanted to distribute it. And because of their schedule, they pushed it back another six months or so on like that, which is too bad. Are um, they distributing it? Well, it's sold out now. It's it's complete. I don't have any more copies. I'm hoping to find another. And how many one. was that? Um, five about eight thousand, including okay, including um, there was a, I don't know, three hundred um, yeah. deluxe copies in a slipcase with a print. You turn in the printing press on again, right? Well, I would like to do that. I, I need a distributor for that, and also I you know I'm I'm a bit older now, and I've got so many more things to do. Uh, so, really so tell me specifically enough what other photos you, you you follow Janis Joplin, but are you looking to do more books than just? Well, Janis? I, I want to do a band book too because I have. Yeah. So explain band fan book. I'm interested in knowing what you mean by band band book. B a n d, a photograph of the band. Oh, oh, the band photographs of the band. Yeah, that's what I mean by by. Sorry, I should have or been band. more specific. The band. The, the know, band. So who's the band? band? Explain mm -hmm. that. Oh, music, they did music from Big Paint and, and the band album. They oh. did uh, their most uh, famous song is the, the Night, what is it? Um, I don't know what the famous one, but The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down and and um, uh, what was the famous one? Uh, they, 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 in 69, when they, in 68, 69, when they first came out, they were famous because they were Bob Dylan's band and they oh. toured in England with him and they toured all over. And they were very well uh, ex expected. So, so you you two don't even know who the band is, is, is that right? I well, don't. I know, I know the song you spoke about. Oh, I, I don't mind that you don't know. It tells gives me information, right? So, <laughs> I shouldn't yeah. expect to make. No, I never heard of the album. band. Really, no. uh, oh, their first maybe. album. Their first album was music from Big Paint, and the second album was called the band. And and then they did like I think four, maybe maybe four more albums. Wow. Um, yeah, was and, I? And, and, and they were at the time known as the best band, uh, the really? best players. In, in, yeah, in, in, in music. Yeah. Like Eric Clapton wanted to quit the cream and play with the band. He wanted to wow. be part okay, of the band. So I, I don't know any of those. Oh, my goodness. Maybe really? we were wow. doing drugs, Neil. I don't know. No, no, no. no. Oh, I, just, I, don't, I don't think I was live, maybe. That, <laughs> this is yeah. okay. So I'm going to go back yeah. to. So basically, you. The fan, so the book is gorgeous. You said sold out. Congratulations on it. Now. The, the band book is sold out. The James oh, not yours. This one, not this one yet. Okay, no, not this one yet. This this came out may I think six months ago, four months ago. I'm not even sure when it came out because I was too busy to pay attention to it actually. And and we had a publicist with 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 the distributor, and we and I paid some independent people to do stuff, and I had uh, people working for me doing social media. And it didn't get, I don't even think it got one major review in, in, in one in one magazine. I don't know. I don't know, you know, what that was. But so I've started to pick up again and say this book, I picked it up and I looked at it. Like here, I'll show you the first page. Have you got pictures of the album covers in there too? Like Pearl, for example? I don't know. It's only my photographs. And it's not really about Genesis. So these are photographs no one's really ever seen. That's right. There's wow. almost a hundred pictures that were never published before. The the reason being priceless. 
that in those years when I took the pictures, 68, 69, 70, um, th there, were, there was no place to publish pictures. If, if you sold a story to a magazine, they put eight pictures, let's say that was a yeah. lot. And so you got three magazines, yeah. 24 pictures, and there were no venues for it. It wasn't like we have now. So I picked out my best 25 pictures, let's say, and just put the negatives away because I had no need for them, nor were anybody collecting prints. And now people collect prints and photographs. So thank I God just, they weren't burning a fire somewhere. You well, took good care of them. I did yeah. actually. I actually left them for seven years when I went to Europe, and they really could have disappeared, but they were meant not to, obviously. And they're still wow. in really good shape, also. Um, wow. So, and they're really beautiful. When I, you know, a lot of times in in music, you um, you have outtakes, album outtake albums, right? And to me, I don't really listen that much, but whenever I've heard an outtake of something rather than the ma the master take, I always like the master take better. I think the musicians knew what they were doing when they released it. These are not outtakes. They're just space takes. There's no space for them. It's not that they were not as good as the original ones. So right. it's a real yeah. treat. So what I That's want to your retirement. You, uh, I wish it were. <laughs> yeah. it, well, you know what? It, hey, if you get this podcast around enough, maybe it will be. <laughs> so Elliot, here's a question for you. Yeah, sure. So you're still doing photography? Yes, yeah, I am. What, do you, I what am. types but of photography are you doing? Like, I just photograph for myself, actually. I, I just do my, my own work. And now, which is, I think, gorgeous. I, I can show you a little bit. I, I Over the time, yeah. what, what happened, I stopped doing commercial work uh, because, as I say, uh, it, it disconnected it disconnected what I was doing from sure. the essence, the essential reason why I started, which was just seeing something gorgeous and loving it. So if you yeah. want to see, I could maybe show you some of my flower yeah. work. The newer stuff. Let me see. So, right so, so this is commercial work that you use. To no, it's not commercial work. It's just my own work, and then I got to try and make money from it afterwards. So I just—it's totally self-financed and without any thought of being commercial. I mean, I. I and you sell yeah. the you sell the the photographs. Then. The the new ones, not so much actually. I haven't. It's, I mean, some people find out about my flower photographs, and and I sell some prints like that. Uh, we have a book that I put together. She, I photographed my I photographed um, my my wife for many years. I have a book together we put together called Love at Sixty, um, which has let's see what can I show you here, which has pictures wow. of, and text. So these are published written. books. Uh, did they sell? No, no, I, no, no. This is a print on demand book. Oh, I see. That I that I put together. You know, it's, beautiful. We, it's actually ready to be published yeah and it's it's a really a book for women of a certain age they say uh mm -hmm. to to tell them um not to be afraid to change their lives just because they're 16 yeah. years old because when my wife and i we knew each other uh when we were in college and we uh, we we hadn't we, we first met in 1962 and um we hadn't seen each other for 37 years and then she called up one day out of the blue because my name was in an alumni list or something like that <laughs> You know, and the moment oh, she cool. called, I had this this cosmic experience. I didn't remember who she was at first. She said, "I don't know if you remember me. My name is Linda," and I and I um, I I thought for a minute, and as I was trying to remember, I got an image of myself standing next to a memory, rather standing next to her in her in her bedroom in her parents' apartment when we were in college, right? And the moment I remembered that 
the moment I remember that moment, I got this incredible cosmic opening. It was like, wow, it was just, and I knew we we're going to be together the rest of our lives. Wow. Just like that. How long have you been married? 22 years now. Okay. You got any pictures of yeah. when you were uh, first meeting with her? You mean in college or, or, yeah, college. or this time? Actually, there's just one of her. No, we don't. Uh, there's a picture of her in college and me in college. But we weren't boyfriend, girlfriend in college. We had never, huh. uh, we were just friends. And I had never, and she wasn't in my mind, the girl that I always wanted and never had. And I, I had totally forgotten about her completely. There was no memory of that. Like, yeah. Very heartwarming story. Yeah. For yeah. Sure. And, and, and she knew it also at the same time. So that happened. But I didn't say that to her. I said, um, I didn't say anything because you can't say that to someone. We're going to be sure. together when you just called you for the first you know, <laughs> 37 so, years, right? So, so I, I just yeah. think this Janis Joplin, how many fans are out there, Janis Joplin? This should sell so well. They have to know about it. And we've had no publicity on this at all. Really, really none. Oh, yeah. You know, publicist contacted me. So the best kept secret in town. Yeah, it's so so that's why I kind of looked at it uh, a few weeks ago, maybe and or th three weeks. And I said, boy, I really didn't pay attention to this when it was out. I figured other people would take care of it. You need to get and, on local TV, uh, uh, Elliot. Oh, thank you. I would love to. I'd love I'll, to. I'll See, hook you what, up with a guy who can oh, get yeah. you on as oh, many wow. TV programs as you're willing to go really? on. I'm yeah. willing because I yeah. love this work. People should see it. Also, it's it's a real woman's book. It's about feminine energy. And Janice, you see, the text that we use are Janice's words. Um, okay, so here's one. I just picked it by. This is. I don't know if this picture reads so well over the over. The, it's a kind of a, yeah, a low light photograph. But so she said, and any musician that I see that's working, especially those six days a week cats. They're only doing it because they love music. There's no other reason. No money yeah. is worth that. <laughs> so, Elliot, Dave has a final question for you. And then, oh, okay. uh, and then we're going to find out where we can pick up the book. But go ahead, Dave, with your okay. question. Sure, yeah, I'm sorry. Well, Elliot, I, I'm just a normal guy. And then uh, 25 years ago, I've been married 47 years, 48 if you count the year that we weren't married. Oh. And... Uh, yeah, you count that. 25, 25 years ago, she had this headache that wouldn't go away. It was turned into a stroke. She lost oh. her speech, became paralyzed on one side. You know, my my beautiful wife uh, became a different person. But yet we we worked through it. You know, we we reinvented ourselves and we're still married. Oh, she beautiful. still can't talk. She still can't walk. Really? But she's become an amazing person, uh, like a Martha Stewart Wonder Woman rolled into one. She does everything she did before with one arm and one leg tied behind her back and oh, basically oh. duct tape over her mouth. Oh, I started oh. a website, caregiverdave.com, to help other caregivers, you know, not make the same mistakes I did. Um, you're up there in age, like I am. Uh, has caregiving touched your life? Um, well, the woman I was with before Linda passed away from melanoma. Oh. Um, and she went through, it was about actually a, um, yeah, so... I had, but we had people, you know, helping. Sure. So it wasn't- but you were involved having, too. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we were married, except we weren't legally married. How long did that right? take, uh, that caregiving uh, period for you? Well, she had it for about eight years, I think. About wow. Seven, about seven or eight years. And she never told anyone else about it. She said, no, because if you tell someone, that's all they're going to right. think about when they see you is yeah. your cancer. 
like that. Yeah. And we did all kinds of alternative medicine. We went to, there are cancer clinics in Mexico sure. and Tijuana that are really effective and really good things. If, if that happens to me, I would I would find the right one. Of course, they specialize in different kinds. So that helped, huh? She was very healthy for seven. She had a really good seven years. And, and then at, at some point- the good Quality of life. Yeah, at some point, the, the growth came back. And, and you know- um, Did she ever have surgery or no? Oh, um, well, she, the first time she found it, she had surgery, mm. right? But then it came back two years later. I'll nice. share something with you. The um, I, after she, I'm very much into metaphysical things. I actually do energy work and healing yeah. myself. Um, and I went to see. I went to see. I I was talking with a psychic woman, a clairvoyant, and she was um, channeling Diana to me. And I believe this stuff but i'm skeptical about it so if i'm talking to somebody i'm not just going to believe what they're saying because they're saying it's, it's real in other words you got to tell me something that you can't that she the reader can't possibly know so i didn't so she did that she said some things that only diana and, and me knew about for example this lady would never know so i believe it and um i could go into what it was but we don't have time for that um so anyway i said to diana i said should we should you because the, the doctor wanted to operate on the cancer when she was you know at, at the second stage of it and she didn't want to uh and i said should we have done western medicine they wanted to give her the the um what do you call it the, all the cancer drugs and everything like that and she she tried it at first and then she saw it wasn't working and we went all to this alternative stuff we went to see a doctor that treated the dalai lama and we went to see oriental chinese medicine and we went to all all modicums of alternative and in mexico these alternative clinics that are not allowed here okay and i said to her in spirit should we have got, done western medicine w would you have lived if we had gone along with the with the doctors and she said if you're supposed to live oh no i i said sorry she, she said i said so which is better western medicine or alternative medicine you know which which or natural medicine and she said, they're both good. She said, if you're supposed to, it depends which one you need, you as a person who's sick needs. Yeah. If you're supposed to live, you find the right way, the right way of treating it. And if you're not supposed to live, you don't. And she's well, saying- That's a long time, seven side. years to- uh, Yeah. yeah. Wow. All right. She's saying this from the other side, from the spirit world. Oh my like God. That. Because I was concerned- because I went along, whatever she wanted to do, I I went along with her. I didn't say you should do this or this or this. Yeah. But she was intuitive enough to know what she needed best for her life. All right. So, well, that's, that's a heartwarming story for sure, Elliot. Yeah. Where can we purchase your book and learn more about you? Where's Thank you. Website? Oh, that's so nice. More about me. My website is is is, is elliotlandy.com. Two, L, two L's and two T's. And um, there's all my different... I have impressions, flower work. I do this new pop color work. I'll probably show you a little bit, but I don't think we have time, right? I, no, I we don't. We have to go to something. I got another okay. segment for okay. another. But I appreciate but, it. I'm going to reach out to you, Elliot, and I'll definitely connect Dave as well. Uh, oh, definitely, you, you're, you're, you're on the right track of what you're doing. Oh, thanks. And it's such an important book oh. to honor Janis Joplin's you. life. And any fan of Janis Joplin needs us or of music in that time or into music definitely yeah, yeah. check out in, in, into photography i mean i pick pictures only because they're good photographs oh, they're not because it's janice joplin it has no, to be really you're good. you're you're a great artist and a great it's photographer really appreciate it elliot like for you stopping okay. by
Okay. All Thank right. You. All right, guys. That was the Neil Haley Show on the Caregiver Dave Celebrity Seven. Take care. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Rob Roselli Show. And I'm excited to welcome to the program Rob Roselli. Rob, what's going on? How are you? Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing fantastic as well. Reminiscing, how many years ago was the Great Evolution debates? We did. How many years ago was that? Oh, I'm going to say that was probably about 2012. I'm going to say it's probably about 10 years ago. And when we, you know, when you think about the Great Evolution debate and the experience of that Great Evolution debate. We learned specifically enough that they couldn't win on evolution because evolution is just a theory. Well, that's exactly correct. Um, what I did is I asked a question I knew there was no scientific answer for, and that was, you know, Newton's laws. You know, how, how did Newton's laws compart with the, you know, Big Bang? I mean, how do you how do you solve those mathematical equations of, you know, Newton's laws, you know, universal laws of motion, uh, and you know, reconcile them with the Big Bang. And there, there was no answer. Um, there was a lot of nonsense. There was a lot of personal attacks against me. Um, but I kept up with the scientific question of, you know, the question that Newton, you know, one of the most brilliant men in history, uh, couldn't answer. Uh, knew his laws worked, basically, but he just couldn't, he didn't, couldn't figure out the origins of them outside of God, and this is why Newton actually spent more time trying to interpret the Bible and you know interpreting the Book of Revelation and this sort of thing than he did actually you know developing calculus and developing his own scientific laws. People may not know that, but you know as far as the evolution evolutionists that you gathered against me, you know I think there was a scientist, there was a history professor, or. A, physicist, a couple of attorneys, I, I don't remember who these guys were, but none of them could answer the question before they could sure attack me uh, for just simply asking it. And finally, I just picked random substances and said, you know, the, the evolutionist, there, there's one, there's an experiment, I think they, I don't remember the particulars of it, but they, they're basically able to produce ammonia in a, in a lab and some other life you know, some other chemicals that form the basis of life in a lab. It's the most ridiculous experiment I, I can think of if you think about it. I mean, you're taking intelligence and design <clears throat> and putting it into an experiment to try to disprove intelligence and design. I mean, these are some 200 IQ people with some really, really no common sense or really such a an ardent, uh, disbelief in God or hatred of God that they'll do anything or say anything to try to disprove his existence. Uh, and of course, that gets to moral absolutes. So you're kind of jumping out of the realm of science into moral absolutes and morality in general and the disbelief in God and, and of course, Jesus. Um, so, you know, my, my idea was to experiment with just random substances, and I just named all kinds of substances, and I said, you know, sit there, don't add anything to it, you know, just pick a substance, and I, and I picked a substance, I, I picked dog poop, uh, just to, just to make a point, I mean, to show my disrespect for the scientific knowledge, so-called, but just to make a specific point, I said, you know, if it can involve, evolve into a human brain, then then fine, I'll, I'll believe evolution. You sit there at your scientific journals and you watch it and you observe it. 
but you can't add anything to it. You can't add any intelligence. You can't add any, add any design to it. It just has to evolve on its own. And of course, that's so ridiculous. It doesn't even, it doesn't even garner, you know, an explanation. All right. So, so absolutely. So let's go to climate change. Why do you feel that based on like the latest research, the climate challenge is not real? Climate change? Yes. Well, climate, look, the climate always changes in a natural, in a natural fashion that has cycles. I mean, for example, there's a reason why Greenland is called Greenland because it used to be green. They used to farm it. And of course, now it's covered with, you know, with several feet of ice. I don't know the exact numbers on average. Greenland is all ice. So there was a time where it was farmed and it was green. And, you know, the London, the Thames River has frozen on occasion over the centuries. And so the climate's always changing, but it's not mankind that, that changes it. Um, you know, again, my, you know, on my site, boxofsunglasses.com, um, but it's just a, it's a ridiculous premise to think that mankind can influence the climate on a global scale. Uh, look, I'm not discounting, you know, a smog problem in Los Angeles or something like that, or, you know, you know, you have mountains and you have, you know, you know, thousands of cars pumping, you know, exhaust gases in and, you know, exhaust and all that have nowhere to go and you have a smog problem. I'm not denying that at all. That, that, that is a legitimate environmental problem. I'm not denying that there are legitimate environmental problems. I mean, sewage disposal and and these sorts of things, industrial air pollution control and, and this sort of thing. But this idea that mankind can cause, you know, global warming and global cooling or climate change as a whole is a complete scam. And it's brought to us by charlatans and, and conmen like Al Gore and John Kerry and, you know, with their mansions in Martha's Vineyard and their, their mansions, you know, in San Francisco and Nashville and their private jets and all this other nonsense. So it's just... It's just not possible that that mankind can, can change the, the climate on a global scale like the way they're saying. You know, with their ridiculous computer models and you know, and, and you know, you, you know, your local your local weather person can't even can't predict the temperatures. You know, to a tenth of a degree accuracy. You know, out one week. You know, they give you they give you mid forties or you know mid fifties or mid to low 50s, there's a range of temperatures. And these clowns go out, you know, and they, they have supposedly their models can predict, you know, temperatures to a tenth of a degree, you know, 100 years out. It's absolute nonsense and, and just complete crap. And, you know, you know, what's interesting, Neil, is that it really, and I trace this in, in, in my book, The Un-American Genocidal Complex, um, the environmental movement I consider the baby sibling or, or, or the son or daughter, the child of, of the evolution of evolution because evolution when it comes down to it really isn't about science it's about survival of the fittest and social Darwinism that's really what evolution is to these people in other words destruction of you know a large percentage of the world's population you know and where are we seeing that born out in reality but other than the environmental movement, I mean, environmental movement, the Georgia Guidestones, etc., demands that you know some ninety percent of the world's population needs to be destroyed or killed off, you know, to save planet Earth, to save Mother Earth or Gaia. 
which is just the, you know, the whore goddess of Babylon, if you want to really get down to it. It's been hours developing that, but that's the, basically the whore goddess of Babylon is Gaia. All right. Okay, so uh, basically box 